Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. Guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. This is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be covering Chapter 22 of Polygamy in the Bible. We'll be on pages 219 to 233. And the title of the chapter is The Royal Family Kingdom. The recording portion of the program will be about 28 minutes long. And then we'll get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. Thank you for listening. The Royal Family Kingdom. Chapter 22 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 219 to 233, program for Tuesday, February the 22nd, 2022 at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, to sit on this throne. Jesus was born to inherit the throne of the polygamist David. It was an inheritance of political dominion, and a royal blood inheritance, which he never denied. And when Jesus was born, an angel came to Mary and said Jesus shall have the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then came the wise men from the east to locate and pay tribute to that king of the Jews, with treasures normally presented to kings. They also spoke to Hero the king, and said that Jesus would someday be that king of the Jews. This was not good news to the jealousy road, and he was troubled. This, too, was the conclusion of all the chief priests who said that it was thus written by their prophets. Herod organized a special hunting trip, and Jesus was the target. He sent orders to kill the children under two years old. Historians all agree that it was the male children that Herod had slain, not being fearful that a woman would take over his throne. The renowned historian and theologian, Farah, said that Herod issued his fell mandate to slay all the male children of Bethlehem and its neighborhood from two years old and under. Also an earlier historian named Macrobius, living in the 3rd century, stated that, among the boys under two years of age, whom Herod ordered to be slain in Syria, his own son also had been slain. 
the massacre of so many male children created a great surplus of women who were the same age as Jesus. This same situation had occurred in the days of Moses. This abundant supply of women would have been an opportunity for Jesus and his apostle to live the law of plural marriage. Jesus was born of the lineage of David, through Bathsheba, whom we know was a polygamist. Polygamous marriages were valid and lawful in the sight of God, or we must deny that Christ is the legal descendant of David. The scriptures clearly inform us that a bastard, or one who is corruptly born, is not a son, nor has the rights and honors of a legitimate son. So when Paul writes saying, then are your bastards and not sons, he infers a bastard has no legitimate claim on the hereditary line of Israel. To receive the honors and titles that Jesus did as a king, Christ had the title and therefore legally claimed it according to the lawful and inheritable rights of that seed, according to the flesh. This claim was through a polygamist line and was honored by the Jews. It was his kingly and priestly powers which brought about the envy of both pagan and Jew. His influence was felt in every domain of social, religious and political life, and soon caused the jealousy and fear of those who felt the sting of his rebuke. For Jesus exposed the corruptions of the political tyrants and the religious demagogues. Jesus did not make an exception in obeying any of the laws of God, and therefore it is only plausible that he would have obeyed the laws as given to Moses and lived plural marriage. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioned the many women that followed Jesus. They also wrote that they ministered unto him of their substance. They were giving him means to complete his work and mission in life as though they were obeying the command of God that said, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. If this would have been a general giving of gifts, then we would have read that both men and women were giving of their substance to him. But these women were acting as helpmates to him. This band of women also followed him to Calvary for the crucifixion and to the sepulcher. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the lessened of Joses and Salom, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him, and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Luke says that there were women who followed him to the cross, they prepared spices and ointments for his burial, and they came to the sepulchre to dress his body. Now then, according to Jewish traditional laws, only members of the immediate family are permitted to attend to the body and enter the sepulchre of the deceased. These women could have been the mother, sisters and wives of Jesus. The very nature and intent of God giving wives to the ancient prophets would also be reason to give wives to Jesus. One of the purposes of Jesus' life was to understand the feelings, the sufferings, and the trials of all men. He must know the love, the family ties, and the grief of losing honorable wives in death as the ancient prophets did. 
How could Jesus know the feelings and emotions of those ancient prophets who had lived plural marriage, with all of their trials and joys, the love and the sorrows connected herewith, unless he in like manner had obeyed the same laws and commandments from God? For years before Christ's coming, the Jews believed in a Messiah who would have children. The Messiah will die, and his son will become king in his stead, and there will be no immortality, but the people will live much longer. Furthermore, a king must have successors to his title and inheritance. For a king to die without an heir is not only a disgrace, but it is a mark of divine disapproval. From the testimony of Isaiah, Christ lived to have children and see them. Said he, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his fallen offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his ace, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. When a person sees his own children, he is seeing his seed. This is what Isaiah said would be the privilege of the Messiah. Would God say that it is pleasing in his sight for righteous men during the time of Abraham or Moses to live the principle of polygamy and raise large families, but that in a different time they couldn't? Would God be more tolerant of the wicked raising children in wickedness in Christ's time, but was intolerant of them to do so when Moses was alive? It is only reasonable that God should check the increase of the wicked and at the same time increase the families of the righteous. There are 16 to 18 books of the Old Testament that are entirely silent in regard to the practice of plural marriage, and there are eight righteous of the New Testament that did not mention it. That does not mean that during the time in which those books were written, it was not practiced or that it was not permitted. Man's honor and glory is obtained by woman. Alone and single, man fades into insignificance, but through women and children, his glory is extended and perpetuated. For this reason Paul said that the woman is the glory of the man. Jesus was not the exception to this principle. Before he died, he said to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son may also glorify thee. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Isaiah the prophet saw the Messiah seated upon the throne of the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. In this instance the train was not a robe and dash for it filled the temple. This train implies more than just disciples. The term referred to relations or family members. This was also the interpretation by Paul, who says concerning Jesus, Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Abraham the polygamist, being a friend of God, the Messiah chose to take upon himself his seed, and by marrying many honorable wives to himself, 
show to all future generations that he approbated the plurality of wives under the Christian dispensation, as well as under the dispensations in which his polygamist ancestors lived. In the light of new revelation and new archaeological findings these little known facts are finding their way to discovery. In 1875 an archaeologist by the name of Guinea discovered these facts in ancient records. The written commentary of the learned Ems Viadli are most revealing. Did Jesus have children? There seems to be evidence that such was the case. In 1873 M. Clement discovered near Bethany on the Mount of Offense certain sarcophagi of extremely ancient times. On these were small crosses, but none of the usual symbols of Jewish burials, which leaves no doubt of the religion of the persons whose remains were preserved in them. M. Clement Guigny, writing of these discoveries in the Palestine Exploration Fund Portally, 1874, 7-10, notes the following to have been buried there, Salom, wife of Judah, Judah, son of Eliezer, Lazarus, Eliezer, the son of Nathan, Martha, daughter of Pesach, Simeon, son of Jesus, Salom Zion, daughter of Simeon. Other sarcophagi had been destroyed earlier. Concerning them writes Clement Guigny, by singular coincidence, which from the first struck me very forcibly, these inscriptions, found close to the Bethany Road, and very near the site of the village, contain nearly all the names of the personages in the gospel scene which belong to the place. Eliza, Lazarus, Simon, Martha. A host of other coincidences occur at the site of all these evangelical names. The Simeon, son of Jesus, was called in one of the inscriptions, the priest, H. Cohen, and M. Clement Benny concluded. This Simeon might very well be the second bishop of Jerusalem. But then would arise. The grave question of the marriage of Christian priests, since Simeon has a daughter named Salem Zion, M. Clomont-Guinea's French name suggests him to be Catholic, and bound to the doctrines of celibacy. However, the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were circumcised Jews, and the earlier ones, at least, certainly obeyed the marriage commandments. Lieutenant seems the only reason Clement Guigny did not candidly state his beliefs was the question of a married clergy, for throughout his article he suggests this Simeon to have been the Bishop of Jerusalem. He promised to write a complete paper on the subject when he had more carefully examined all the find. Lieutenant was an important find from the standpoint of archaeology, for it was the first actual discovery of the name, Martha, which would alone be sufficient to make this collection important from an exegetic point of view. Yet, his promised paper was never published. Why? Was it because a full study of the find disclosed that this, Simeon the son of Jesus, was the Bishop of Jerusalem? I fully believe this to be the case. Orthodox Christians have purposely destroyed valuable historical evidences which would prove embarrassing to them. 
that such was probably the case here is suggested by the fact that several ancient writers imply that Simeon the Bishop of Jerusalem and President of the Church died c. 106 was of the family of Jesus. It would be only natural for Jesus' son, when he was old enough to succeed James, the brother of the Lord, on his death, to the presidency of the church. In all probability Simeon was a son of Jesus and Martha, and was that child who appeared at the crucifixion. A Greek writer named Celsus, who lived in the second century, had wrote a great deal about Christianity. In his writing called True Discourse he was critical of Christianity and its doctrines, but one of the reasons he objected to Christ was because he had so many wives. It was said that Celsus was the first pagan who denounced Christianity, and in his work The True Word, he attempted not only to refute but to ridicule the doctrine of Christianity. It is a work of some significance to Christians because, his true discourse is the oldest literary attack on Christianity of which the details have survived. We know of it from Origen's reply, Contra Celsium, in eight books, which dates from the 3rd century, and preserves about nine-tenths of the discourse. Celsus contends that Jesus kept all the Jewish customs, and even took part in their sacrifices. However, in the Judaic writings we find the clearest and most forceful denunciation of celibacy and barrenness. They say simply that marriage is a duty and celibacy is a sin, and he that does not marry causes the image of God to be diminished and the divine presence to withdraw from Israel, Yeb. 63b, 64a, the ancient prophet Isaiah wrote more about the promised redeemer than any other prophet. Among his writings was the prophecy that the Saviour would live to see his own children. He said, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. This scripture indicates that when Jesus would be at the cross of crucifixion, he would see his children, which no doubt did occur in Dash making his offering more heart-rending and the trial more severe. At the cross were many women, wailing and lamented him, but Jesus said, Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves, and for your children. These no doubt were his wives and children, fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah. Paul said that Jesus took upon him the seed of Abraham, which means that he continued the lineage and posterity of Abraham. The apostles followed the example of their master. For instance, John the beloved disciple, writes in his second epistle, unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Again, he says, having many things to write unto you I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you, and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. Again, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Some ancient and modern philosophers say John is talking about his wife or wives. Paul says, Mine answer to them that do examine me is this, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? This may also infer plural wives. 
In the days of ancient Israel there was a constant stream of plagues, wars and calamities causing great loss of young men and warriors. Many of those young and valiant men who died in the cause of Israel were not to be forgotten and dash nor were their names to be held no more in remembrance before the Lord. In fact, they were often held all the more revered because of their sacrifice for Israel. When these young men fell in war, the dead brother continued his name and his posterity in remembrance before God of Israel. You said you had some this custom in ancient times was also practiced by the patriarchs. Then when Moses came, it was reiterated and was established firmly in the law of God through Moses. We observed that when Christ came, this law was still in force. There was no abolishment or changing, nor was anything introduced that prevented the ancient law of God from being practiced at the time of Christ. Was there anything in the teachings of Christ or his apostles that abolished this law or changed it? Did Christ, as he went forth baptizing and teaching new converts, ever say anything about the law that required a brother to marry a deceased brother's widow? Not a word. Jesus did not say that Moses suffered a plurality of wives because of the hardness of their hearts, and that it was not so from the beginning. No, he said directly the reverse. Lieutenant was for putting away wives and for not taking wives that Jesus condemned them. Putting away wives was not only a condemnation by Christ and the apostles, but it was considered an evil for thousands of years before they made that announcement. There are certain evidences, then, which are apparent by their absence. 1. Of all the sins that Jesus condemned, he made no mention of plural marriage. 2. Jesus never condemned nor apologized for any of the ancient prophets who lived plural marriage. 3. Jesus saw many people in the Jewish community who had more than one wife but he never chastised or corrected them for their marriages. 4. Jesus never instructed his apostles to condemn the practice of plural marriage. 5. Out of the several obligatory laws of Moses, which pertain to plural marriage, Jesus never made any change in those laws. The New Testament never changed the laws of plural marriage in the Old Testament they were left in force by Christ. If any changes would have been made, they would have been equally explicit and just as positive in their renunciation. But such clear and definite changes are not to be found in Dash neither is there any reason that such a change should be made. If plural marriage would have been a sin, it is certain that Jesus and his apostles would not have been afraid to speak against it. We must also ask that if Jesus had not been married and had not had children, then why don't Christians not get married and not have children if they believe he was perfect and they should follow him? Jesus was born in the lineage of kings. He was honored and called a king, a king of kings, and a king of the Jews. He had the responsibility of the throne of David. John the Baptist also announced the coming of that kingdom. 
when he was hailed before the Romans, it was for the charge of being a king. His accusers said, we found this fellow perverting the nation, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. When they brought him before Pilate, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. They mocked him as a king by putting on him a purple robe and dashed the royal robe of a king. And then for a king's crown, they put on his head the crown of thorns. On the cross of crucifixion was the inscription of his crime, and king. One of the thieves who hung beside him said, If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Jesus was guilty of being a king. He was honored as a king, he taught as a king, and he obeyed the laws of his birthright as a king. So Christ came through the lineage of Israel as a king, indeed as a king of kings. Though most of the tribes had become dispersed and their identity lost, Judah retained the lawful and hereditary family line. According to prophecy, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shil, Messiah, the Christ, come. Genesis This lineage of royal priesthood was based upon the polygamous line of ancestry. If Jesus did not marry and have children, then he failed as the true Messiah in the following ways. 1. He failed as a king by not continuing the lineage of royalty. No's worse fate can befall a king than to have his posterity stop because of his failure to have a son to carry on the rights of that throne and genealogical line. 2. He failed as a patriarch in that patriarchal lineage of priesthood. 3. He failed in keeping the laws of Moses, which were to be a perpetual law kept by Israel's lineage. 4. He failed as a father, for every man was given the command to multiply and replenish the earth and to continue that lineage and seed. If Jesus were a polygamist, then he obeyed all these laws and commandments according to a law, inheritance and the priesthood. Chapter 23 Prophets and Apostles were married. Okay, so that's the end of the reading portion of the program. Now we'll get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. Once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. There is also a chat room available at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally mormon. And uh, we go live Monday through Friday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. So we're pretty much on every day. Anyway, let's get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. Thank you for listening. The Royal Family Kingdom, Chapter 2 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 219 to 233. 
Men and brethren, let me speak freely, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him and are with that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on this throne. Acts chapter 2 verses 29 through 30. Jesus was born to inherit the, the throne of the polygamist David. It was an inheritance of political dominion and a royal blood inheritance, which he never denied. And when Jesus was born, an angel came to Mary and said, Jesus shall have the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Then came the wise men from the east to locate and pay tribute to the king of the Jews with treasure normally presented to kings. <clears throat> One little note on those wise men, they were magi who were Jews who stayed in Babylon after the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> there were a lot of Jews that stayed there. And the wealth that they brought was set aside by Daniel the prophet. Daniel knew when the Messiah would come and he told them to keep an eye out for a certain sign and that this sign would come in a specific time. And he set aside this wealth for these magi in this order of Daniel to take this wealth to the Messiah when he was born. When they saw the sign, they came and Jesus wasn't an infant when this happened. They were actually living in Nazareth, I believe. And the reason why King Herod wanted to kill all of the, the children under two is because that's how old Jesus was. He was around that age when these magi of Daniel came to find him. Continuing on. They also spoke to Herod, the king, and said that Jesus would someday be a king of the Jews. This was not good news for the jealous Herod, and he was troubled. This, too, was the conclusion of all the chief priests who said that it was thus written by the prophets. Herod or organized a special hunting trip, and Jesus was the target. He sent orders to kill the children under two years old. See Matthew chapter 2. Uh, another thing about King Herod is that um, 
he suffered from syphilis because of his uh, sexual endeavors. And one of the late stage symptoms of syphilis uh, causes you to have um, a screwed up mind. It causes you to go crazy. And then that combined with the physical suffering of syphilis caused him to be very paranoid and very angry and it came because he was not obedient to God's laws he thought because of his power and wealth that he could do whatever he wanted and he was a very wicked man of course you have to be wicked to have babies murdered because they might be a king when you're in your old age. I mean, Herod would only live a couple of years after this, maybe a year or two after this, maybe three, and he would die because of his syphilis, because of complications to that. So, I don't know, it's it's messed up things. That guy was messed up. But anyway, <clears throat> historians all agree that it was the male children that Herod had slain not being fearful that a woman would take over his throne. The renowned historian and theologian Farah said that Herod, quote, issued his fell mandate to slay all of the male children of Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, and its neighborhood from two years old and under, and quote Farah's life of Christ, page 30, uh, one little thing. Bethlehem actually means house of bread. And Jesus is our bread. We feast from his words. I don't know. I just think it's cool. Like house of bread. Bethlehem is <clears throat> not Bethlehem, but Bethlehem is actually the house of Lehi and they have found that there's archaeological evidence that they uncovered while building a road in Israel where Lehi's home was so you should look that up on YouTube it's pretty interesting also an earlier historian named Macrobius lived in the third century stated that Quote, among the boys under two years of age whom Herod ordered to be slain in Syria, his own son also had been slain. Wow, that's messed up. End quote. The massacre of so many male children created a great surplus of women who were the same age as Jesus. This same situation had occurred in the days of Moses. This abundant supply of women would have been an opportunity and his apostles to live the law of plural marriage. Because, once again, not only do you have more elect women, just by nature, there are more elect women who qualify for the higher blessings than there are men. But when you have this horrible thing where these male children are murdered you're going to have the ratio of women go up as compared to men because they were killed when they were babies also 
when you have war, you know, you're, you're losing a lot of men, and you have a ratio of women that is higher than that of men, which is another reason why people would live plural marriage. Continuing on, Jesus is born of the lineage of David through Bathsheba, whom we know was a polygamist. Polygamous marriages were valid and lawful in the sight of God, or we must deny that Christ is the legal descendant of David. The scriptures clearly inform us that a bastard or one who is corruptly born is not a son and has nor has the rights and honors of a legitimate son. So when Shaul, or Paul, writes saying, quote, Then are we bastards and not sons, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, he infers a bastard has no legitimate claim on the heredity line of Israel to receive the honors and titles that Jesus did as a king, See Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Our Messiah had the title and therefore legally claimed it according to the lawful and inheritable rights of the seed according to the flesh. See Romans chapter 1, verse 3. This claim was through a polygamous line that was honored by the Jews. It was his kingly and priestly powers which brought about the envy of both pagan and Jew. His influence was felt in every domain of social, religious, and political life, and soon caused the jealousy and fear of those who felt the sting of his rebuke. For Jesus exposed the corruption of the political tyrants and the religious demigods. Jesus did not make an exception in obeying any of the laws of God, and therefore it is only plausible that he would have obeyed the laws as given to Moses and lived plural marriage. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention the many women that followed Jesus. They also wrote that they were ministers unto him of their substance. They were giving him means to complete his work and mission in life as though they were obeying the command of God that said, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. If this would have been a general giving of gifts, then we would have read that both men and women were giving of their substance to him. But these women were acting as helpmeets to him. This band of women also followed him to Calvary for the crucifixion and, the sep- and to the sepulcher. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 55. There were also women looking on, on afar off, among whom Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and of Joses and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, 
followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 and 41. Luke says that there were women who, were, who followed him to the cross. They prepared spices and ointments for his burial, and they came to the sepulcher to dress his body. See Luke chapter 23, verses 55 and 56. See also Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Now then, according to the Jewish traditional laws, only members of the immediate family are permitted to attend the body and enter the sepulcher of the deceased. These women could have been the mother, sisters, and wives of Jesus. The very nature and intent of God giving wives to the ancient prophets would also be reason to give wives to Jesus. One of the purposes of Jesus' life was to understand the feelings, the sufferings, and the trials of all men. He must know the love, the family ties, and the grief of losing honorable wives in death as the ancient prophets did. How could Jesus know the feelings and emotions of those ancient prophets who had lived plural marriage with all of their trials and joys, the love and the sorrows connected therewith, unless he, in like manner, had obeyed the same laws and commandments from God? For years before Christ's coming, the Jews believed in a Messiah who would have children, and in fact, um, to, uh, Tovia Singer and Michael Sobach and Stuart Federo, like these are Jews that I enjoy listening to. Uh, they drive me insane in their their thought processes, but they judge Christianity based on apostate Christianity and what apostate Christianity does and says. And apostate Christianity will say that Jesus was never married. And they have a huge problem with that because the Messiah would be a married man, and they knew it. They knew that if, if a man who was a Jew, who was Torah observant, as Jesus was, because he came to fulfill the law, which means to live it perfectly, that he had to be married, that he had to try and have children to fulfill the commandments of being married and having children, which is the thing, you know? And they would judge Jesus according to apostate Christianity, and it drives me nuts because, and it makes me sad because they're judging him based on a lie. Rome hijacked early Christianity. Early Christians were Torah observant. They kept the law. And when Rome hijacked Christianity, they perverted it. They forced celibacy upon their their priests and their bishops, even though it says in the scriptures that a bishop and a deacon, by the way, 
must be the husband of one wife. And I say that that's a mistranslation as well. I think I believe it's that they have to be married and ha- be the husband of at least one wife. Because polygamy is nowhere condemned in the Bible, but they perverted the scriptures. And in fact, we've talked about, like, things in the original texts, the, not the original texts, we don't have those, but the earliest texts that we have talk about certain things, and then there's nowhere mentioned, like, so two of the biggest ones that I know of is the woman taken in adultery that Jesus forgave. That's not in the earliest text. That comes hundreds of years after the earliest texts. Texts. Uh, I'm not sure how well that word is going to go over on the recording because I don't think I say it right. But um, but also another one was that women should stay silent in the churches. That's not in the earliest texts either. That's not in the earliest um, writings. That was added three or four hundred years after Christ. And it was added probably to keep women silent and to take priesthood away from women, which, guess what, they do have. My wife has matriarchal priesthood. When God gave me the keys of the priesthood, he gave me the keys of all the priesthood. and. I think it was 2015 when my wife wanted to receive a revelation, but she wanted to, you know, because I teach anybody can receive revelation, and she was practicing, like asking God to receive a revelation personally that she could receive, right? And we're talking, and I was like, I started receiving a revelation, and and it was just in my mind, but the Spirit came upon me very strongly, and I said, Kim, get a piece of pen, or a piece of paper and a pencil and write this down, and I received a revelation specifically for her, which was not the goal of the night, like she wanted to receive it on her own by herself. And she has received revelation as well, but uh, but at this point she had not. Anyway, so I started writing, and within the period of 10 minutes, the revelation was complete, and it was complete, completely given to me, and I gave my wife matriarchal priesthood uh, at the command of the Father. And she can assist in blessings. And she has. Um, So, for those of you that don't know, God had me organize a church called the Church of the Living Messiah and the School of the Prophets back in 2013. Um, There are only a couple of offices within the church. Um, I have ordained certain um, 70 apostles and certain apostles um, but the, the two main roles well the three main roles in the, the church are 
myself, I am the Lord's anointed. I received the anointing of the Father under his own hand in 2003. Um, then there, was a, there is a bishop who holds patriarchal priesthood. And he's actually a descendant of Newell Knight, which I think is funny because he's named after him. But um, he holds patriarchal priesthood. And then you have the office of uh, patriarch. And the patriarch of the church, actually, he fell. Like, he, he was going down a bad path, and he was receiving revelations. And he started just throwing all the revelations out. Um, but he was receiving revelations from Satan. And I tried to help him recover, but he went down a dark path. And in 2016, I had to excommunicate him and another person from the Church of the Living Messiah. But anyway, getting back to the patriarchal and matriarchal priesthood, when we set my daughter apart, or not set her apart, we confirmed her a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, and of the Church of the Living Messiah. And uh, we gave her the gift of the Holy Ghost. My wife stood in. I put my hands on my child's head, who's eight years old. Brother Knight, I'm not going to say his first name, put his hands on her head as the patriarchal priesthood. And my wife put her hands on my daughter's head as a matriarchal priesthood. So I thought it was really interesting, and that's what God told me to do. So I have the fullness of the priesthood. Blaine has the patriarchal priesthood. I guess I just said his first name. But anyway, he has the patriarchal priesthood, and my wife has the matriarchal priesthood. And we did as we were commanded. And it was a beautiful, beautiful experience for all of us involved, but especially my daughter. Continuing on. The Messiah will die, and his son will become king in his stead, and there will be no immortality, but the people will live much longer. And that comes from the Messiah idea in Jewish history by Greenstone, pages, or page 147. So we're at page 223. Furthermore, oh, hey, we just read page 222, and it's the February... 22nd, 2022, haha, <laughs> interesting, anyway, uh, page 223, we're at 28%, actually, I gotta look at this, I, I wonder, um, hold on, I'm just scrolling down, or scrolling back up real quick, just cause I'm curious, Oh my gosh. Page 222 is at 
<laughs> That's funny. I love numbers. I, I'm ridiculous. Like when I'm driving and there's a cool number on my dash, like my odometer or my hours, because the truck records the hours of operation or whatever, I just, I, I'll tell my wife, Kim, guess what? And she'll be like, what? Because we talk on the phone a lot. And I'll tell her the, the number that I'm excited about. And she laughs because I'm ridiculous. All right, so I got to find page 223 now. Uh, I know it's around here somewhere. I think it was at 28%. Oh, there it is. Yep. 28%. All right. Furthermore, a king must have successors to his title and inheritance. For a king to die without an heir is not only a disgrace, but it is a mark of divine disapproval. And that's true as well. Like, if you're married and you don't have kids, like in the Jewish culture, that was like a horrible thing. Like, everybody looked at you like, what's wrong with that guy? You know? All right, let's see here. From the testimony of Isaiah, the Messiah lived to have children and to see them. Quote, and this is Isaiah, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Yet it pleased the Lord, or Jehovah, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. Isaiah chapter 5, 10, and 11. I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5, 10, and 11. I think I'm still trying to wake up from sleeping earlier. Let me get a drink here real quick. When a person sees his own children, he is seeing his seed. This is what Isaiah said would be the privilege of the Messiah. Would God say that it is pleasing in his sight for righteous men during the time of Abraham and Moses? to live the principle of polygamy and raise large families, but that in a different time they couldn't? Would God be more tolerant of wicked, the wicked raising children in wickedness in Christ's time, but was intolerant of them to do so when Moses was alive? It is, reasonable, it is only reasonable that God should check the increase of the wicked and at the same time increase the families of the righteous. There are 16 to 18 books in the Old Testament that are entirely silent in regard to the practice of plural marriage. And there are eight writers of the New Testament that did not make mention of it. That does not mean that during the time in which those books were written, it was not practiced or that it was not permitted. 
you know, when Rome hijacked the church, they could have easily just added something to contradict the the laws of polygamy in the Old Testament, which is interesting because Rome, Rome's, Roman, it was against the law in Rome, um, among the Romans, to have more than one wife. Now, they let the Jews keep their traditions and their laws, but eventually they made the Jews, like, they wouldn't allow the Jews to do anything. Like, they had to go out into the diaspora to keep God's laws and to leave Rome. And in fact, I find it interesting that the family of Joseph of Arimathea, um, are, okay, let me say that right. Jesus Christ was the great nephew of Joseph of Arimathea. That's why Joseph of Arimathea gave jo- uh, Jesus the tomb, the unhewn sepul or the whatever that the cave, the sepulcher, whatever. Um, but Joseph of Arimathea was a tin trader, and he used to go up beyond Hadrian's Wall up into Scotland. And he was a trader, and he had a business. And he took the wives and children of Jesus Christ and the, mar- uh, and the mother of Jesus Christ up to Scotland. And the reason why they went to Scotland is because they went beyond Hadrian's Wall, which was the end of the Roman Empire, the Scots were not putting up with the Romans. And they never were able to get past Hadrian's Wall, at least in that time, to conquer Scotland. So Joseph took those, the family of Jesus out of Rome and, and because they were scared, they were worried that, um, that the the family of Jesus would be murdered as well. They had to get out of Rome to protect the family of Jesus. Continuing on, man's honor and glory is obtained by women. Alone and single, man fades into insignificance. But through women and children, his glory is extended and perpetuated. For this reason, Paul said that the woman is the glory of the man. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. Jesus was not the exception to the principle, but before he died, he said to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. John chapter 17 verses 1 and 4 Isaiah the prophet saw the Messiah seated upon the throne of the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 let me see if I can 
So, the new Oxford American Dictionary... says that um, train is a verb to teach a person or animal a particular skill or type of behavior through practice and instruction over a period of time. The plan trains people for promotion. Oh, okay. Let's see here. I'm trying to figure out, like, if there's a Hebraic, um, definition. Of course, a uh, train is a, a vehicle, or whatever, and to train somebody also is, okay, I'm not going to mess with that. Anyway, so his train filled the temple. In this instance, the word train was not a robe, for it filled the temple. This train implies more than just disciples. The term refers to relations or family members. This was also the interpretation by Paul, who says concerning Jesus, Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. Abraham the polygamist, being a friend of God, the Messiah chose to take upon himself his seed, and by marrying many honorable wives himself, show to all future generations that he has abrogated the plurality of wives under the Christian dispensation, as well as under the dispensation in which his polygamous ancestors lived. <laughs> Approbated, what does that mean? We're going to learn words today, everybody. Approbate. To approve formally, sanction. Oh, okay. That's easy enough. That he sanctioned the plurality of wives into the Christian dispensation. All right. In the light of new revelation and new archaeological findings, these little-known facts are finding their way to discovery. In 1875, an archaeologist by the name of Gianu discovered these facts of ancient record. The written commentary of the learned M... Oh my gosh, hold on. Okay, I'm going to read that last sentence again because I'm like, I'm not pronouncing that right. In 1875, an archaeologist by the name of Gianu discovered these facts of in ancient records. The written commentary of the learned M. Zvi Udli are most revealing. Did Jesus have children? There seems to be evidence that such was the case. In 1873... M. Cormont Gianu discovered near Bethany on the Mount of Offense certain sarcophagi of extremely ancient times. On these were small crosses, but none of the usual symbols of Jewish burial. Okay, first of all, the crosses that were on this on the um, the sarcophagi. Oh, hold on here. 
they there were masons marks they would put the crosses on the ossuaries to keep uh, for the bones so if you put a body in a sepulcher you let it rot and de decompose and over the period of a year you come back a year after the death and you have bones that's what you have the body decomposes completely if it's not um, embalmed so you've got this these bones and what they do is they will take the bones and they will take a sarcophagus and they will put the bones in the sarcophagus and then they put the lid and usually the the sarcophagi is made of limestone carved limestone and you'll have crosses on carved limestone but um it doesn't mean that that was a christian it just they're called their mason marks that's all they are so anyway um and a lot of these sarcophagi and uh, the ossuaries i think that's how you say it I, they don't really have a lot of jewish marks on them at least not that i know of i could be wrong um I have watched and listened to documentaries on these type of things because I'm a big flipping nerd. And one of the reasons I like driving trucks so much is because when all is said and done at night, after my, well, excuse me, after my wife goes to bed and after all of the radio show and all of the whatever it is that like whatever phone call I'm on or Zoom meeting or whatever, I listen to documentaries. I listen to a lot of documentaries because I'm just interested in history and I'm interested in uh, my ancestors who are Scottish and Jewish. Um, I'm interested in theology. I'm interested... And that ha doesn't... That doesn't only mean I am interested in Jewish or Christian theology. I'm interested in Hindu theology and Buddhist theology. In fact, before I met the Mormon missionaries, I used to study at a, at a Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist temple. And I thought it was funny. Um, when we went into the sanctuary, um, they had this big old statue of, of the Buddha. Well, it was, it was like the li a life-size statue of the Buddha that was you know, sitting how the Buddha sits with his hands and like all of the everything in the right place. Anyway, but they they had this stinking Buddha um, sitting on this. I guess it was a stage, and all of these Tibetans are like four feet tall, and so they can walk upright in there, you know. But I'm almost six feet tall, and if I have shoes on, I'm six feet six foot tall and my head was above the eye level of the Buddha so if I walked into that room standing up the monks would smack me with this thing that they <laughs> it, like it was just they, it didn't hurt but they'd be like get your head down because it was disrespectful according to them to have um to have your head above the eye level of the Buddha. 
I am interested in all of that stuff. And you know, those, those Tibetan Buddhists, they know how to cook a mean meal. Like, oh my gosh. I loved, I loved going and, and being with them. It was, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Anyway, but that was a long time ago. All right, so let's see here. All right, I'll just finish. I'll just start with the sentence that I that got me stuck on that little tangent. On these were small crosses, but none of the usual symbols of Jewish burial, which leaves no doubt of the religion of the person who remains were preserved in them. Claremont Gianu, writings of these discoveries in the Palestinian Exploration Fund Quarterly, or now it's Palestine Exploration Fund Quarterly, 1874, pages 7 through 10, notes that the following have been buried there. Salome, wife of Judah, Judah, son of Eliezer, and Eliezer in Hebrew is our word for Lazarus. Eliezer, son of Nathan, Martha, daughter of Pesach, Simeon, son of Jesus, or Yeshua, Salomzion, daughter of Simeon. Other sarcophagi had been destroyed earlier concerning them, writes Claremont Gianu, by singular coincidence, which from the first struck me very forcibly. These inscriptions found close to the to the Bethany Road were very near the site of the village, contained nearly all the names of personages uh, in the gospel scene which belonged to the place. Eleazar, or Lazarus, Simeon, Martha, and a host of other coincidences occur at the site of all these evangelical names. Now, they have found other sarcophagi which are related to the Gospels. And I was listening to a documentary on this the other day. And, uh, well, they were making an apartment complex in, in Israel. And they are trying to, like, do the foundation with all the concrete footings and all of that. And they accidentally opened up a tomb. A sepulcher, I guess. And so everybody had to stop. And they had to bring the archaeologists in. And they had three days to gather all the information and whatever they wanted to gather before they put a concrete slab over this tomb and, and um, you know, sealed it in and built the apartment complex over the top of it. They noted the location of where the tomb was underneath somebody's apartment, which I find extremely interesting. Anyway, this happened in 1983. Well, on the ossuaries, there were names of the family members of Jesus Christ. And there were names of disciples of Jesus Christ. And 
I don't know, I just find it interesting that we know that some of his family did go beyond Hadrian's Wall, but then you had other, um, like you had a lot of disciples stay in Jerusalem. They were like, we're not going anywhere, right? Well, they were saying that if you have this many names, and they were names on the the ossuaries, the bone boxes of the people who were in them, and some people actually, they're shared bone boxes, so like, they'll they will put um, multiple people in one bone box or ossuary. Anyway, but they were saying that they only did this certain thing during uh, the first century, whatever. And so this would have been around the time of Jesus. And you have all of these names from Scripture in this uh, in this tomb. And that the... They they got some statistical guy out there, you know, and they said to have the number, um, to have this number of people with these names in this tomb at this time, uh, that the chances that this is the, the disciples and family of Jesus, the numbers were like, I can't remember if it was 30 to 1, but it was really low. Like, and if you have, there was other numbers too, I'm sorry, I... I do like documentaries, but I can't remember them uh, when I only watched them one time. So, uh, But it was just interesting that um, this guy is talking about, you know, they found these other tombs, I guess. And I didn't know about this before I read this earlier. But, um, but they found more evidence. And they're continuing to find evidence. Anyway... The Simeon, son of Jesus, was called in one of the inscriptions, the priest. And that's from H. Cahan and M. Claremont Ganyu concluded. The Simeon might very well be the second bishop of, of Jerusalem, but then would arise the grave question of the marriage of Christian priests, and Simeon has a daughter named Salam Zion, M. Claremont Gyanu, French name suggests him to be a Catholic and bound to the doctrine of celibacy. However, the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were circumcised Jews. Yes, they were. That's early Christianity because the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were not hijacked by, by pagan Rome. Anyway, um, and the earlier ones, let's see. However, the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were circumcised Jews, and the earlier ones at least certainly obeyed the marriage commandments. It seems the only reason why Claremont Gianu did not candidly state his belief was the question of a married clergy. For throughout his article, he suggests this Simeon to have been the bishop of Jerusalem. He promised to write a complete paper on the subject when he had more carefully examined the find. It was an important find from the standpoint of archaeology, for it was the first actual discovery of a name Martha, which would alone be sufficient to make this collection important from an exegesis point, exegenic point of view. Yet his promised paper 
was never published. Why? Was it because of a false study of the find disclosed that the Simeon son of Jesus was the bishop of Jerusalem? I fully believe this to be the case. Orthodox Christians have purposely destroyed valued historical evidence which would prove embarrassing to them that such was probably the case here is suggested by the fact that several ancient writers imply that Simeon, the son of the bishop of Jerusalem and president of the church died in 106 AD and was the family of Jesus. It would be only natural for Jesus' son when he was old enough to succeed James, the brother of Jesus, on his death to presidency in the church. In all probability, Simeon was the son of Jesus and Martha and was that child who appeared at the crucifix. And that is according to M. Zvi Udley, Ph.D., in his books. Um, Truth, volume 13, page 253. The Greek writer named Celsus, who lived in the second century A.D., wrote a great deal about Christianity in his writing called The True Discourse. He was critical of Christianity and its doctrines. But one of the reasons he objected to Christ was because he had so many wives. It was said that Celsus was first pagan who denounced Christianity, and in his work, The True Word, he attempted not only to refute, but to ridicule the doctrine of Christianity. And quote Encyclopedia Jewish Encyclopedia, Volume 3, page 637. It is a work of some significance to Christians because, quote, his true discourse is the oldest literary attack on Christianity of which the details have survived. We know of it from Origen's reply, Contracelium, in books in eight books which date from the third century and preserves about nine-tenths of the discourse and quote Oxford Dictionary of Christian of the Christian Church page 260. Celsus contends that Jesus kept all the Jewish customs and even took part in their sacrifices and quote by uh, Contra Celsum Celsum by Origen, page 71. However, in the Judaic writings, we find the clearest and most forceful denunciation of celibacy and barrenness. They say simply that marriage is a duty and celibacy is a sin. And he that does not marry causes the image of God to be diminished and the divine presence to withdraw from Israel. And that is in Yeb, Tractate 63b and Tractate 64b. And I believe that is in the Talmud. They say uh, Judaic writings, but um, Tractate... 
Well, it doesn't say that. It says Yeb 63B and 64A, but I'm pretty sure Yeb in Tractate 64B and 64A are in the Talmud. Now, if you don't know, the Talmud is 70, 72 books <laughs> of rabbis' writings. And um, last week, we actually had a woman try to claim that she was a Jew, but she was also a Protestant. Well, I'm a Mormon, but I'm also a Jew. Called, I mean, um, my family, my, my grandmother is a Jew was a Jew anyway, or is a Jew, because you're Jew by blood, right? Anyway, but, um, so I guess you could be a Protestant and a Jew, you know. I mean, I was a Protestant and a Jew. I was a Baptist. Actually, during that time, though, my family had kept it hidden from me that, that we were Jewish, that my grandmother was a Jew, and that we come from Czechoslovakia and East Germany, and um, I didn't know at the time, but when I was Baptist, I would have been a Baptist, a Baptist Jew, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm not, um, I wasn't raised in Judaism, though. So, um, but uh, she was trying to claim that she had read the Talmud. And I was like, really? That's impressive. And I was like, I thought, I, I couldn't remember how many volumes. I thought it was 28. It turned out it's like 72 books, volumes. And they're like thick books, too. You know, 72 thick books. And if I wanted to buy the Talmud, which I would love to, to just read in, um, it costs between 2700 to $3,000. Probably if you get a nice set a lot more than that, and I just don't have that kind of money. I mean, I do have two uh, Book of Mormons from 1901, but that would only get me 20, that would probably get me about $1,200. Uh, they're Parley P. Pratt editions of the Book of Mormon, and, uh, you know, I'd have to come up with the, uh, the remaining 1500 if I were to sell those Book of Mormons, and I'm not going to do that. Anyway, the ancient prophet Isaiah wrote more about the promised Redeemer than any other prophet. Among his writings was the prophecy that the Savior would live to see his own children. He said, quote, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Isaiah, or Yeshiyahu, Chapter 53, verse 10. This scripture indicates that when Jesus would be at the cross of crucifixion, he would see his children, which no doubt did occur, making his offering more heartbreaking or heartrending and the trial more severe. At the cross were many women bewailing and lamenting him. But Jesus said, Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Luke chapter 23, verse 29. These, no doubt, were his wives and children fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah. Paul said that Jesus took, looked upon him... Oh, I'm sorry. Jesus, or Paul said that Jesus took upon him the seed of Abraham. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, which means that he continued the lineage and posterity of Abraham. Page 229. The apostles followed the example of their master. For instance, John the Beloved disciple writes in the second epistle in his second epistle unto the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth again he says having many things to write unto you I would not write with paper and ink but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full again the children of thine elect sister greet thee. Some ancient and modern philosophers say John is talking about his wife or wives. Paul says, Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? This may also infer plural wives. In the days of ancient Israel, there was a constant stream of plagues, wars, and calamities causing great loss of young men and warriors. Many of those young and valiant men who died in the cause of Israel were not to be forgotten, nor were their names to be held no more in remembrance before the Lord. In fact, they were often held all the more revered because of their sacrifice for Israel. When these young men fell in war, the dead brother continued his name and posterity in remembrance before God and Israel. So another part of the Torah, another law in Torah, is that when when you marry, you're not allowed to go to war for one year. Your job is to make your wife happy and to give her a child. That's your job. As a Jew in Israel, they cannot draft you or conscript you or whatever and make you go to war. Your duty is to make your wife happy and to give her children. And I don't know if it talks about this in this this particular chapter, but that is... Um, something I've read and something I've I've studied in depth on. So, anyway, this custom in ancient times was also practiced by the patriarchs. Then, when Moses came, it was reiterated and was established firmly in the laws of God through Moses. We observe that when Christ came, this law was still in force. There was no abolishment or changing nor was anything introduced that perverted that ancient law of God from being practiced at the time of Christ. We're on page 230 at 78%. Was there anything in the teachings of Christ or his apostles that abolished this law or changed it? Did Christ, as he went forth baptizing and teaching new converts, ever say anything about the law that required a a brother to marry a deceased brother's widow? Not a word. And that is part of the law, too. That's part of Torah. Like, if you have a brother who gets killed or who dies for some reason and his wife does not have any children, it is the duty of the brother, whether he's married or not, 
to take upon him the widow of his brother of his brother and to impregnate her and to raise up children to the name of the dead brother. That's one of God's laws. And Jesus did not come to do away with one jot or tittle that that nothing in the law would be abolished until all things were fulfilled. Jesus did not say that Moses suffered a plurality of wives because of the hardness of the heart and that it was not so from the beginning. No, he never, he, no, he said directly the reverse. It was for putting away wives and for not taking wives that Jesus condemned them. Putting away wives was not only a condemnation by Christ but and the apostles, but it was considered an evil for thousands of years before they made that announcement. There are certain evidences then which were apparent by their absence. Number one, of all the sins that Jesus condemned, he, he made no mention of plural marriage. Number two, Jesus never condemned nor apologized for any of the ancient prophets who lived plural marriage. Number three, Jesus saw many people in the, communi- the Jewish community who had more than one wife, but he never chastised them or corrected them for their marriages. Number four, Jesus never instructed his apostles to condemn the practice of plural marriage. Number five, out of the s- several oblig- obligatory laws of Moses, which pertained to plural marriage, Jesus never made any changes in those laws. And he couldn't anyway because Deuteronomy chapter 23 says that we're not allowed to change. We're not allowed to add to or to take away from the law of God. So on page 230, and we're getting to the point where I have to make a new clip because I can only go so long. So Emmett, if you're listening... We're on uh, Polly, I'm titling it Polly, Chapter 22, Part 3. So go ahead and play that at this time. Um, Also, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. If you call during the recording, the pre-recorded part of the show, I will take your phone calls off off air in the screening room and when we get to the point where at the end of the recording part of the show whatever um, if you want to go on live you can go on live and if not I will answer your questions or comment on whatever it was that you said to me in the screening room so once again that phone number is 917-889-8827 that's 917-889-8827 And Emmett, now you can play part three. Page 231. The New Testament never changed the laws of plural marriage in the Old Testament, so they were left in force by Christ. If any changes would have been made, they would have been equally explicit 
and just to, just a positive in their rem, uh, re, renunciation. But such clear and def, definite changes are not to be found. Neither is there any reason that such a change should be made. If plural marriage would have been a sin, it is certain that Jesus and his apostles would not have would not have been afraid to speak against it. We must also ask that if Jesus had not been married and had not had and ha, not had children, then why don't Christians not get married and not have children if they believe he was perfect and they should follow him? I don't know if I said that right. If Jesus didn't have a wife and children or wives and children and that he lived the perfect life, why don't Christians follow his example? I mean, Paul said that, like I said before, that a bishop and a deacon had to be the husband of one wife or at least one wife. You know, which is another thing, too. Like, why are they ordaining and conferring priesthood upon 12-year-old boys who are not married? I mean, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. Okay, Joseph Smith in, in April of 1844 said, If they contradict the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, you have to set them down as imposters. Well, if, if a deacon has to be a husband of at least one wife, then why are they ordaining 12-year-old boys in the LDS church? That's a different discussion and a different topic for a different time. I'm just bringing it up. Anyway, and in fact, one of my friends, who is a polygamist, left the LDS church and that was like the thing that broke his shelf. <laughs> that was the thing. I mean, everything else. And he believes Joseph Smith was a true prophet, you know, and, and I like talking to him, you know, and he, he decided that um, he keeps, he keeps uh, all the feasts and festivals and they, they do the meetings and stuff and we like to go and visit them. I really enjoy visiting with this guy, but we were talking about it one day and he's like, yeah, that... That when I read that, I was like, "Why are they ordaining twelve-year-old boys?" And I brought it up. He never told me this, but I just recognized it one time when I was in one of my studies, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." Anyway, continuing on, Jesus was born in the lineage of kings. He was honored and called a king, a king of kings, and a king of the Jews. He had the responsibility of the throne of David. John the Baptist also announced the coming of that kingdom. When he was held before the Romans, it was for the charge of being a king. His accusers said, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, which is a lie, saying that he himself is a king, is Christ the king. Luke chapter 23, verse 2. When they brought him before Pilate, Pilate therefore said unto him, Thou art a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, 
that I should bear witness unto the truth. John chapter 18, verse 37. Now, Pilate, he became a Christian. After everything he witnessed, he became a Christian. But Pilate came from pagan Rome. And in the tradition of the pagan Romans, there were uh, demigods that were gods that came into mortality that were the children of a god and a mortal woman. So like the whole idea that Jesus could be this guy that he's claiming to be was completely in in the tradition of the Roman people, that this really did happen. The Romans and the Greeks have traditions about these these demigods that were were the children of a god with a mortal woman on the earth that were demigods. And Jesus is totally telling him, I came into this world for this purpose. My father's a king. I am also a king, you know. Anyway, page 232. They mocked him as a king by putting him putting on him a purple robe, the royal robe of of a king, and then for a king's crown, they put on his head a crown of thorns. On the cross of crucifixion was the inscription of his crime. A king, one of the thieves, and actually this was a murderer that was saying this, so there was there was a murderer and there was a thief that were up there. And I guess the murderer probably was a thief too. But anyway, one of the things who hung beside him said, If he be a king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. Jesus was guilty of being a king. He was honored as a king. He was he taught as a king and he obeyed the laws of his birth of his birthright as a king. So Christ came through the lineage of Israel as a king, indeed as a king of kings through most of the tribes, though most of the tribes have become dispersed and their identity lost, Judah retained the lawful and hereditary family line. According to the prophecy, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And that's in Mass. Messiah the Christ or what you know what I don't agree with this interpretation of scripture the scepter of the scepter of power shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh come and that's in Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 well Jesus was a Jew so the scepter of power did not depart from Judah when Jesus came. And the keys were given to Peter. And the scepter of power did not depart from Judah when Peter came. And the last one was, uh, well, J- uh, James became the president of the church after Peter. And he was a Jew. And the scepter of power did not depart from Judah when he came. And John He continued on as a translated being, and he was a Jew. And the scepter of power did not depart from Judah until, like, when he came, because he was a Jew. 
But when Peter, James, and John in 1829 came as resurrected individuals and laid their hands upon a pure Ephraimite who was the name by the name of Joseph Smith, the scepter of power departed from the house of Judah because Shiloh, a pure Ephraimite, had come. And for these people that are like, Joseph Smith is a Davidic servant. Well, Joseph Smith was a pure Ephraimite, not a Jew. And if he was a Jew, to fit into your whole Davidic servant theory, then the scepter of power did not depart from Judah when Joseph Smith came because he was a Jew. But he wasn't a Jew. He was a pure Ephraimite. And the prophecy of Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 is fulfilled because when the scepter of power or the keys of priesthood and the church departed from John, who was the last one to hold it, who was a Jew, and it was given to Joseph Smith, who was a pure Ephraimite, the scepter of power departed from the house of Judah to the house of Ephraim. And the prophecy was fulfilled. This lineage of royal priesthood was based upon a polygamous line of ancestry. If Jesus did not marry and have children, then he failed as the true Messiah in the following ways. He failed as a king by not continuing that lineage of royalty. No worse fate can befall a king than to have his posterity stop because of his failure to have a son to carry on the rights of that throne and genealogical line. Number two, he failed as a patriarch in the patriarchal lineage of priesthood. Number three, he failed in keeping the laws of Moses, which were to be a perpetual law kept by Israel's lineage. Number four, he failed as a father, for every man was given the command to multiply and replenish the earth and to continue that lineage and seed. If Jesus were a polygamist, then he obeyed all these laws and commandments according to the law, the inheritance, and the priesthood. So that's the end of that chapter. When we come back, we'll be on page 234 and we'll be reading chapter 23, which title is Prophets and Apostles Were Married. Thank you for listening. And uh, we're done with the reading. So if you want to call in, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. Hello. You guys there? Kim, I hear you. Hi. Um, I can hear mom, though. She says she can't hear me. Hello? Hi. Hello? Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, currently at the spur, (laughs) pounding out frozen coal, walking around my trailers checking to make sure I ain't got nothing dragging in there. So 
I didn't tell you this, Kim, when I had you in the screening room, but uh, a Greyhound bus decided to pass me in a snowstorm in a no passing zone. And hold on. That loud? <laughs> no, you're good. Well, I mean, like, not to me, it isn't. Maybe it is to them. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just uh, when the coal comes out of the mine, it to wet, and when it gets down to oh, freezing, it freezes in, and you have to take a rubber mallet and a rubber uh, a rubber uh, mat, and just make sure you don't have any freezing up. Anyway, that Greyhound bus, I called the. Uh, the number on the back of the garage, the bus. He says, "What's the number of the bus?" The number of the bus was too small for me to read it. I said, "I can't read uh -huh. the number of the bus." You know, I'm driving a semi truck and he's pulling away from me. And he says, "Well, I can't help you then." I said, "You know who's driving that bus? There is a schedule." And, and there's a person who is right where he is supposed to be, and you can't help me. This guy just almost ran me off the road, passed me in oncoming traffic in a no-passing zone in a snowstorm. And you can't help me? Nope. Sorry, oh, can't help you. Oh, my gosh. I got it on dash cam, so hopefully I can lift that off of there and turn it in. I for the listening audience, I've been a driver. So let me think. I started driving semi truck in nineteen ninety four. And then I got my C D L in ninety five. So I was a, a farm truck driver. I drove a nineteen forty five deuce and a half uh with a potato bin on the back. And I worked for Larson's Farms north of Idaho Falls in Hamer, Idaho. And my job was to go back and forth between potato silos and the field where they would, they had these diggers and they would dig up the potatoes and it would put it on a conveyor belt and shake all the dirt out of it. And then I would, uh, I would drive alongside the digger and uh, somebody's doing a whole bunch of something with the phone, and it's banging around and making all kinds of weird noises. Emmett, what are you doing? <clears throat> I've been muted. Okay, well, I'm not doing anything because I'm just sitting here staring at the phone while he's talking. Well, I don't think you've been muted, Emmett, so please mute your phone. Anyway, so um, I have been the first or among the first people on a lot of accidents. And uh, one of the reasons why I drive so safe is because I've seen so many accidents and I've seen so many people die right in front of my face or I've come up on the scene and there's whipping teenagers and young adults all over the place because they were driving like a bunch of idiots down in Arizona and they ripped they rolled their, I think it was a Bronco or a Blazer. Anyway, and um, a couple of years ago, I 
was coming down the hill, uh, coming down from Schofield through Price Canyon, and some asshole truck driver couldn't just wait and follow a cold truck up the hill, so he had to pass him in the canyon in the pa- in a no passing lane, and Balin, this kid named Balin, he was like 21. He's flying around the corner, and all of a sudden there's two semi-trucks. There's a coal truck and this other asshole who's in jail now. He's in prison now. And, like, as far as I'm concerned, people that do stuff like that that cause the death of other people, it's blood for blood as far as I'm concerned. He should have been put to death. But um, because there was no reason for it. Anyway, I was one of the first people on the scene, and Balin's guts were ripped out all over the damn place. And so when I see people passing in no passing zones, especially like this Greyhound bus driver with all these passengers, in oncoming traffic, it pisses me off. Anyway, I got a dash cam that will read um, license plate numbers. I actually have the dash cam. It's got a forward and a rear-facing camera, and then I have another dash cam that just faces me. And um, I'm going to get that information off of there and and send it into Greyhound and give it to uh, Carbon County Sheriff's Department because that's reckless endangerment. And the guy was behind me when I turned my turn signal on because there was two lanes. And then um, there was, you know, the lane was merging. And I turned my turn signal on. And he's back there probably about, I don't know, 50 to 100 feet. And I'm going slow because I'm 64 and a half tons, you know, and I'm going up this little hill and I'm getting to about maybe about 54 miles an hour in a 65. And uh, he starts flashing his lights, his brights on at me and he comes flying around me. And it's like the top of a, a hill on a turn. So... You know, you don't see anybody coming until they're there, and there was a semi-truck coming. Um, Yeah, so anyway, so uh, it's snowing like crazy out here tonight, and um, I had to dump my coal in Price instead of taking it to Castleville because they told us the roads are impassable. So now i got to drive back to the truck yard hopefully I can get there there's uh, there's a hill called four mile that's not really steep but it's steep enough to give us problems anyway but I'm gonna try to get back to the yard tonight so and then uh, I guess I'll be working Saturday night because I only got one load today but they said that this storm is going to be here for until 5 p.m. tomorrow night which is fine because 5 p.m. is the beginning of my shift. Oh, by the way, Kim, uh, since I'm going to be home tomorrow, can you call our babysitter and let them know that I will not, or that I will be watching our baby? Okay. Yes, and um, also you have him Monday and Tuesday because she has a thing that she has to do. Sorry. Ah, uh, curses! You need to find a second babysitter. <laughs> I am. Uh, last week he did this to me. 
And I was tired all week long because of Monday and Tuesday. Like, I, I never recovered. I listen, I think it has to do with Scott's <laughs> birthday. So it's a thing. It's his 50th. It's a big deal. We have to go. Oh, and are they doing it on Saturday? Why. If they're yeah. doing it on Saturday, oh, what the heck? Kim. What? It's an adult thing. What? I can't work tonight. I have to make it up on Saturday. And I can't work Friday because it's Shabbat. Stop. Not you. Uh, Her. Stop. You know what? I did get one load. I only have to make up three loads, so I don't have to go in right at five. I'll go in late. Okay. So. Let me message her, though, really quick. I'm going to mute me while I message her. Okay. Anyway, so this program's been long enough anyway. Um, and let's see. Emmett, and I'm sitting here at the coal yard. I don't see anybody. Is anybody in the uh, in the uh, call uh, guest call-in line or in the chat room, Emmett? Uh, no one's in the call-in line. I'm checking the chat room now. Uh, I just reloaded it. No? Logging in. Doesn't look like it. How come you had to log in? It says logging in when you reload it because it's like making sure the right identification. It doesn't like log in oh. the whole thing. I'm like still on the studio. It's just like logging into my profile in the chat room. It's one of the okay. steps of well, the Yeah, this program's been long enough, so... One nice thing about getting tonight off is I did sleep all day, so hopefully I can get um, two more programs recorded tonight so that they will be ready to go for Wednesday night and for Thursday night. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I uh, This sucks. I, I hate going home when I – so one of the things that sucks about driving a truck at night is if you sleep in the daytime and you wake up, and you're ready to go to to work. Uh, there is a um, if you lose if you if you can't drive because of weather or whatever, um, then you you, you got to stay awake all night. Uh, and if you try to go to bed, it just screws you all up. I don't know. It's stupid. Anyway, all right, well, I'm going to end the program, and uh, thank okay. you, everyone, for listening. And uh, I will give you a call a little bit later. It looks like my friend Kent is just pulled up beside me at the spur, so I'm going to go give him a little bit of harassment because that's how I am. So love you, Kim. Thank you, Emmett. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care. God bless, and goodbye. Emmett, cue the music. Thank you.